We read God's word in Luke 22. We'll read the first 34 verses of that chapter. Luke 22, 1 through 34. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew nigh, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. Then entered Satan into Judas, surnamed Iscariot, being of the number of the twelve. And he went his way and communed with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him unto them. And they were glad and covenanted to give him money. And he promised and sought opportunity to betray him unto them in the absence of the multitude. Then came the day of unleavened bread when the Passover must be killed. And he sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare us the Passover, that we may eat. And they said unto him, Where wilt thou that we prepare? And he said unto them, Behold, when ye are entered into the city, there shall a man meet you, bearing a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house where he entereth in. And ye shall say unto the good man of the house, The master saith unto thee, Where is the guest chamber, where I shall eat the Passover with my disciples? He shall show you a large upper room furnished. There make ready. And they went and found as he had said unto them, and they made ready the Passover. And when the hour was come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him. And he said unto them, With desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say unto you, I will not eat any more thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves, for I say unto you, I will not drink the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. And he took bread and gave thanks and brake it and gave unto them, saying, This is my body which is given for you, this do in remembrance of me. Likewise also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood which is shed for you. But behold, The hand of him that betrayeth me is with me on the table. And truly the Son of Man goeth as it was determined, but woe unto that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to inquire among themselves which of them it was that should do this thing. There was also a strife among them, which of them should be accounted the greatest. And he said unto them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, And they that exercise authority upon them are called benefactors, but ye shall not be so. But he that is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he that is chief as he that doth serve. For whether is greater, he that sitteth at meat, or he that serveth, is not he that sitteth at meat, but I am among you as he that serveth. Ye are they which have continued with me in my temptations. And I appoint unto you a kingdom, as my Father hath appointed unto me, that ye may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. And he said unto him, Lord, 
I am ready to go with thee both into prison and to death. And he said, I tell thee, Peter, the cock shall not crow this day before that thou shalt thrice deny that thou knowest me. Thus far we read the word of God. I call your attention to verses 31 and 32. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Think over your life, beloved, and identify what was the lowest moment, or if there wasn't just one of them, then think of all of them. The lowest moment when you were tempted, perhaps with the greatest of all temptations, not just to steal or to commit fornication or adultery, but to deny your Lord, to cast off your faith, to say, if this is how my life is, and he's sovereign, he's in control, and he could change it, but he isn't, why should I serve him any longer? Think of those moments. And it happens in the lowest moments of the life of many of God's children that they sometimes ask this question, where is God? And where is Christ? Does he not see? Is he not doing anything about it? Why does it seem that my trial goes on and on and it does not end? Have you wondered that? If you have... Don't be ashamed to admit it. Many of God's people have wondered that. And it isn't so much in the asking of the question, but it's if you don't have an answer to the question in the end. That's the real issue. There is, of course, an answer. God, where is he? He's here. He was with you there. He was in the fiery furnace with Daniel and his, with Daniel's three friends. He was in prison with Joseph. He's here. He's here in love. He's here in grace. You might not feel it, but he's here. But there's something more in answer to the question. Where is my Savior when I need him? And if I were to tell you, or he were to tell you, he's praying. Would that comfort you? Peter, Peter. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for thee. And right there, Jesus says to Simon, as it were, the love of Jesus Christ for his people never ends, it never fails or grows weak. I will show that love right to the very end. You might not know it, so I'll tell you, I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not. Oh, beloved, he's praying. 
The doctrine set forth in our text is the doctrine of the preservation of the saints. Peter was in great danger, and the Lord warned him about the great danger he was in. And he denied it. He didn't see the greatness of the danger. And that's the occasion for the Lord to say, I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. The doctrine of the preservation of the saints. A beautiful doctrine. A reminder to you and to me who in ourselves are so weak and sinful that we could not stand a moment that the Lord, who chose his own from all eternity, who sent his son to die the death of the cross in time for each and every one appointed to salvation, that Lord will infallibly, invariably, certainly bring to heaven everyone whom he's appointed to salvation, even though the earthly path there appeared to go lower and lower and lower into temptation and trial. There are many components to the doctrine of the preservation of the saints. One is central in our text, the prayer of our Savior. I call your attention to the text under the theme, Christ's prayer for Peter's preservation. Notice first, a violent shaking predicted. Second, messianic intercession assured. And finally, grateful response required. It was, of course, the night in which Jesus was betrayed by Judas And just a few hours after leaving the upper room, where most of what we read in Luke 22 takes place, just a few hours later, not only would Jesus be arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, but the disciples would forsake him and flee. And that is the great temptation in which they were, the moment of danger that they would not stay with their Lord. And not only that, but in just a few hours, Peter, who says, I am ready to go with thee both into prison and to death, will say, I don't know him. I don't know him. And he'll curse and say, I don't know him. He stood in a great danger, and he did not recognize it. There was something about the disciples forsaking Jesus Christ that was necessary For Jesus Christ to make atonement for our sins, he must die alone. Not only is he the only one who can die, the only one who is God in the flesh, but he must die alone. It must be evident that even his closest circle of friends and family cannot help him. And to make that so clear, some of them will not be present. We know John was there. John, more than any of the others, stayed loyal because he's the one who tells us as a first-hand witness some of the things that go on in the high priest's palace and in the first three hours in the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. But the others are gone. Jesus Christ must bear the curse of God alone. Nobody can help him. From the viewpoint of Jesus Christ's suffering, it must happen But from the viewpoint of the disciples, to deny their Lord and to flee when their own lives are in danger, though he's about to die, is sin. 
it was a falling into the greatest temptation imaginable. The figure of sifting of wheat, which our Lord uses in the text to speak of that temptation, is to the point, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. It is threshing, or rather harvest season again, although there's not much wheat grown in these parts, and so you won't see many threshing machines. But when a farmer harvested his wheat, especially in the days before combines and threshing machines, he had to take the wheat into some place where the winds would blow and throw the wheat into the air, stalk and grain and all, and throw it with such violent force that the force of the thrusting of the wheat into the air and falling again would separate the grain from the chaff and the straw and the winds would blow the chaff away. You didn't sift wheat gently. Neither does Satan ever come and tempt us gently. You should never expect that. Not Satan. God is kind and merciful to us, but Satan, our adversary, is violent. For you understand that especially his goal in all the temptations we face is to separate the grain from the straw. And whereas Jesus Christ says of his church and each and every elect, they're all part of the grain. They stay together. Satan says, maybe I can get them to appear as straw. Maybe I can separate Jesus Christ from those who follow and confess him. And that would be accomplishing quite something, wouldn't it? We who are united to Christ by a living bond of faith, if Satan could manage to destroy that bond, cut it in two, we'd be lost. And that's his goal. Therefore, the temptations that come to you and to me are severe. The figure is to the point. That's true regardless of what temptation it is. And even you and I, ourselves being humans, know that there are times when we are, as it were, taken by temptation. If we don't actually give in to it, it is a battle with every ounce of our spiritual energy not to give in, because we know we may not, but the old man of sin and the heart in us desires it so strongly. Indeed, sinfully, we sometimes find it easier just to give in than to fight. Every child of God is tempted. The word of God that comes to us in the text this evening and using Peter's temptation as an occasion is the word every one of us needs to hear because there is no temptation but such as is common to man. And that's not just to say that every one of us is tempted somehow, but that the most violent temptations that come upon the people of God, the most violent of them being to deny our Lord and Savior at some point in our life, the most violent also are common to the people of God. We need to know that at that moment that we think that way, our Lord is praying for us. 
As a church of Jesus Christ, not only do we need to hear this to apply it individually to ourselves, but also in light of many trials that the Lord has led the congregation and the denomination through of late. You understand what Satan is trying to do. Why should I continue a member of a true church of Jesus Christ? If this is what goes on, if this is what it costs me, and Satan's planting that question and hoping you say, no reason at all. I could walk away from the true church of Jesus Christ just as quickly as I get out of bed in the morning and get dressed and go about my activities. That's what Satan wants. What especially explains the violence of the shaking that the figure sets forth are two factors to which our Lord alludes. And both of these factors are not only found in our text, but they're also reflected or taught early on in head five of the Canons of Dort, that head that treats of the preservation of the saints, and the beginning of the, of the head that sets forth the need for it. The first is Satan himself. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you. God does not tempt. That's James 1, verse 13. God leads us into temptation, which is a reason why we pray, lead us not into temptation. And by that I mean, God in his sovereign wisdom permits there to be a circumstance in which we will be tempted. And especially if we're proud, if we're arrogant, if we're not watching in prayer as we ought to be, if we've forgotten that Satan is ever present and unceasing in his attacks of us, sometimes God will say, I'm going to let those fiery darts hit you square on so you remember to pray. God will lead us into temptation, but Satan tempts. Satan is the one who works in our heart to try to destroy the work of God's grace and does it by making sin look attractive. And by making unbelief look better than faith. Satan does that. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you. The word translated desired is an interesting word because it means more than just it's what Satan wanted and it's something that was in Satan's mind or heart. It conveys the idea that Satan made a request to God. And that's not new in Scripture, is it? We know he did that in the case of Job. And so it seems that the same happened here. That Satan comes to God and says to God, God, I want those 12 disciples. I want them to deny Christ. I want them on my side. I want to get them away from your side. Isn't that bold and audacious? Satan knows God is sovereign or he would never come to God and ask him. And yet the request is that God let Satan win the spiritual battle in which God and Satan are engaged. What a foolish request from the viewpoint of coming to God himself. But that's what Satan does here. He desired, that is, he asked God for the twelve and apparently was emboldened in his request 
by recognizing that he had Judas Iscariot exactly where he wanted him. Then entered Satan into Judas, surnamed Iscariot, being of the number of the twelve. And if God were to give Judas over to Satan, why not, Satan supposes, that God give all of them? This is what explains the violence of your and my temptations. At least it's one explanation. Satan, trying to destroy the work of God's grace in you and me and the church of Jesus Christ and the covenant that God is working to realize, but he must ask God's permission. And God says to him sometimes, not well, sure, and I know you'll win, but sometimes he says, okay, go try it. And then God leads us into temptation and we fall. In the second place, what the canons of Dort and the text indicate explains the violence of the temptation is the weakness of the sinful human being whom God is saved. Simon, Simon. Peter, which isn't the word Jesus uses here. Simon was his birth name. Peter was the name Jesus gave him later. The word means rock. And giving him that name, Jesus was saying to him, I'm referring to what he does in John 1, 42. Uh, Your name is Simon. And that name reminds you that you were born of a human man and a human woman. And you can trace your lineage all the way back to Adam and Eve. You're as weak as Adam and Eve were. You are as spiritually weak as Adam and Eve were. You are nothing in yourself. You are depraved. You are not worthy of the least of the blessings of God. Peter, I'm going to make an amazing creature out of you. But here, Simon, Simon, don't forget. You are but a man. Of course, one reason Satan tempts humans, and especially tempts the church of Jesus Christ and true believers, is that he wants to destroy the work of God, but he doesn't understanding that he's more powerful than we are. And he's gotten many who appeared outwardly to be believers and true children of God, Judas being one of them. He's gotten many to be with him and share an eternity in hell. And he will not stop trying until he himself is destroyed. This is your experience, beloved. This is what explains the intensity of the temptations that come to you and explains the intensity of the temptations that I face too. My weakness and Satan's desire. And if the Lord ended his word to Peter right there, there wouldn't be a gospel to bring tonight. Any other than perhaps a be on your guard and somehow in your own strength, maybe you have to try to resist as much as you can, which of course is no gospel. The Lord didn't end his words to Peter right there, but I have prayed for thee. It's in the second point that I'm going to really 
explain or expound on the doctrine of the preservation of the saints, but this doesn't become a catechism lecture or a, a lecture class. Uh, it, it has to focus on the words of Jesus Christ in the text. The first thing we're going to do then is notice that Jesus just changed the pronoun. Satan hath desired to have you, but I have prayed for thee. And they're both second person pronouns. In today's day and age, we would say you to both of them. Satan hath desired to have you, but I have prayed for you. And here the King James does, not just because the translators thought it was a good idea, but because it was the way the English people spoke back in that day. Here the King James underscores that Jesus just changed the body of people to whom he was referring. Satan hath desired to have you, plural, all of you disciples, but I have prayed for thee, Peter. And you wonder, why just for Peter? Why did Jesus pray just for Peter? Actually, he doesn't mean to leave the impression that he prayed only for Peter and not for anyone else. He's speaking to Peter. And that's a reason why he changes the focus here. But in addition, there's something else. Think of the 12 disciples. And then do what we really mustn't do, but we're so quick to do in the church of Jesus Christ. Rank them in the order that you thought they were important. They were all equally important. That's the fallacy of my telling you to rank them. But we all have a human standard. Rank them a moment using your fallible human standard. Who's number one? Well, if not number one, Judas was high up there, you understand. He was the treasurer. He had the money. They didn't all have an office in this band called disciples, but Judas does. And Satan got him. Now who's the spokesman? You have the answer. It's Peter. Not always wisely. Not always in a way that you can appreciate. That is that you wish it was so. But always Peter is the first to speak. If, if Satan can get both Judas Iscariot and the great first one to speak. The mouth of the group. If he can get them in his camp. What will be left of the other ten? And here is a reason why when Satan wants to destroy the church of Christ, he doesn't just look at the newborn babes and think of ways in which he can get little children not to listen to the sound education they're given. And he doesn't just go to young people and say, young people, I know what young people are like. Look at what the world will offer you. It's much more desirable than what the church would give you. But he looks at the office bearers and says, if I can get them, then I might have the whole church. In other words... If every one of us needs to, and every one of us does need to, take to heart the danger in which we stand, pastors and professors and elders and deacons do especially. 
And so it's a token of the love of God for Peter that leads Jesus to say, I have prayed for thee. With application of the doctrine of the preservation of the saints, though, this tells us that Jesus Christ, the great mediator intercessor, prays for each and every one of us. His point again was not to say the others didn't need the prayers and I'm not praying for them. If I get you, I'm going to pray for you and you can do the rest. No, if he tells Peter, I've prayed for you, thee, then he's telling all of us here tonight. That is prayers for each one of us personally. His prayer to the Father is not just a generic prayer. There's a bunch of people out there who need help and they're in a bad way. Help them. He brings my name. He brings your name to the attention of the Heavenly Father, our God. And he says, cause that one's faith not to fail. So at the very heart of the gospel in this text, is the fact that we have an interceding mediator. As a mediator, he is a prophet, and as a mediator, he is a king, and both of those are important. But right now, as a mediator, he is a priest, our only high priest. And just as the high priest in the Old Testament both offered sacrifices, as Christ was about to do, and came out and blessed the people after the sacrifices were offered, as Christ does to us from the right hand of his heavenly Father, also the high priest prayed. And Jesus Christ never ceases praying. What a difference there must be between the prayers of Jesus Christ and that demand of Satan. Both express speech to God. Satan hath desired to have you, I have prayed for thee. But Satan's is a demand, as if what he wants, he should get. We don't pray to God that way, do we? Do we? Because that's praying like Satan. But Jesus Christ prays quietly, humbly, meekly, according to the will of the Father. And that's the great difference between the two prayers. Satan prays contrary, finally, to the will of the Father. Satan's goal is to separate Christ and his sheep, and it won't happen. Jesus Christ prays in accordance with the will of his Father. Satan prays using some argument that has no justice to it, Perhaps it's the argument, these are sinners, and no atonement has been made for their sin. They shouldn't have the hope of going to heaven. Jesus Christ prays, knowing full well, in the day in which he spoke to Peter, that he would lay down his life in atonement for sin. And knowing full well today, for you and for me, that he has made atonement full, effectual satisfaction of the justice of God. We have an interceding mediator. Isn't that beautiful? But it's the content of the prayer that's to the point also, and especially to the point of the doctrine of the preservation of the saints. I have prayed for thee that thy faith 
fail not. That's the preservation of the saints. The doctrine of the preservation of the saints does not teach that the saint will never fall into sin. And the Canons of Dort, Head 5, drives the point home with references to David and to Peter and their lamentable falls. And you can study church history and see indications of it time and time again. The prayer of Jesus is not that we never fall into sin. That ought be our prayer. And when it is our prayer in the name of Jesus Christ, God will hear and answer it too. Not that we would never, but that would be kept from specific sins. But the prayer of Jesus Christ is that his faith fail not. That is, that the bond of faith that God created worked in Peter's heart, in yours and in mine, by the Holy Spirit, never be severed. So that though we fall into sin, and though we say things that dishonor our mediator himself, in the end, when all is said and done, we will be brought to repentance. Because that's an activity of faith. Peter, who denied his Lord three times, and then looked up and saw his Lord looking down at him, went out. And he did what a believer would do. He wept bitterly. That's faith. I've denied my Lord. I've offended my God. I am most miserable. Because I know I deserve hell. And the Lord says, but your faith will not fail. I prayed. What a beautiful doctrine. Young people, I want you to take this part to heart. The preservation of saints does not mean simply this. That because you're elected from all eternity and because Christ died for you, you can live how you want. Because that's not preservation of saints. The preservation of saints is a doctrine that speaks of God's preserving work in the heart of His children, young and old alike, who love Him, who love His law, who desire to keep that law. But the beautiful part of the prayer of the doctrine is that when I fall, and there is no one here that will not, my faith will not fail. You wonder, why doesn't God preserve us by keeping us from sin completely? Why isn't the word of God to Satan when he desires to have Simon? No, get away. Don't you come within a hundred miles. Why is the answer of God, as it were, to Satan? Sure. Walk up right next to him. Grab him. Throw him in the air the way a man threshes wheat. And see if you can break his bones and spirit. Why? Oh, the reason the question is so pertinent is because that's what it feels like happens to you and to me. Why must the preservation of the saints... Be so traumatic. And yet the answer isn't hard. 
God is teaching Satan a lesson too. Keep it up, Satan. Try a little harder. We wonder why it can't be over. And God's saying to Satan, well, haven't you learned your lesson yet? Well, then try harder. See if you'll learn it now. Will you, Satan, ever confess that I am the sovereign God who will not let the faith of my people be destroyed? Will you not get it? Try harder. You won't win. And that's why. There's another part from my perspective and yours. In some way, I can't say exactly how, in some way, this too is preparing us for glory. This too of is part of God's way of showing us what we do not deserve. Also part of God's way of teaching us how to hate sin more and more and be on our guard and watchful in prayer more and more. That's partly why the prayer is answered not by Peter not being tempted, but by his being tempted and falling. But his faith did not fail. And Jesus even assures Peter that it wouldn't. In this way, Peter probably didn't understand it. And when thou art converted. For part of the preservation of the saints is also the bringing of the sinner to repentance. And a repentance that understands what the sin was and understands now how I must live before God. And Jesus says to Peter, not if you happen to be converted, if the Lord will hear my prayer, but when you will, you will be converted. And when you are converted, strengthen thy brethren. But we're not yet to that last part of the text, which is the grateful response required. We have to focus a little more yet on the basis for which Christ can make this prayer. A work that he had not yet begun, that is the specific work of dying on the cross, he had begun it of course in the incarnation already, he knew it was coming, but a work that he had not yet begun in history in terms of being nailed to the cross, he knew was about to happen, and he knew why, he being sinless will take on his shoulders Peter's denial Maybe if I were a great man, there's a lot of people's sufferings I could take on my shoulders. Maybe. I don't say I can. I don't boast about that. I'm a weak man too. But you curse me to my face and take my name in vain, and that I'm going to take on my shoulders? Me? You? Jesus Christ. And he would take that sin of Peter, which deserved hell, and he would bear hell, hellish agonies, in full. He knew it. And that's the basis. If it weren't that Jesus Christ died for our sins and then rose again, if it weren't that he were now sitting at the right hand of the Heavenly Father, you and I would never dare pray for ourselves and for each other. Preserve him or her in a great trial. We wouldn't dare. But now we can dare. We can do it confidently. Christ earned this gift. Because as our high priest. 
He gave his life a sacrifice of atonement. Therefore, he's exalted as our intercessor. And so, again, to draw attention to this point without developing it any further, in that Jesus Christ prays for us. You don't see him praying. You can't glimpse into heaven. But he tells us he is. You have the certainty and the confidence your faith will not fail. In other words, the text gives assurance. And in that sense, it serves a polemical function. And that is, it serves to help us point out errors that are common today in Christian thinking, broadly Christian thinking. And especially, there's this error, the error of teaching that you cannot know today that you will go to heaven someday. You can recognize today that you're on that pathway to heaven, but it's up to you to stay on it. Or you can recognize today that you're doing everything that you need to do to get to heaven. This isn't Reformed teaching, you understand. It's what other Christians say. But it's up to you to keep doing it. Just to say you can be a good Arminian and say, today I'm a believer, but I might die spiritually today, and I might end up in hell after all. Or you could be a good Roman Catholic and say, I've got to keep praying to Mary. I've got to keep doing this. I've got to keep doing that. And because I don't know if I'll keep doing those things tomorrow, I don't know today that I'm saved or will finally go to heaven. And against those notions, Jesus says to Peter, your faith will not fail. That's assurance. That's comfort. Let reformed believers fight against the Arminian and, and Roman Catholic person in us, the old man of sin. And let's take the word of comfort to heart. For the sake of Jesus Christ, God will hear and answer. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Now, Underscoring, too, that the preservation of saints means that when brought to conversion and repentance, they will live again as saints. Jesus gives to Peter a command. Strengthen, which is to say, establish. You see, the 11 disciples, Judas now is out of the picture, the 11 disciples really were shaken to the core when Jesus died. They didn't know what to make of it. And so they go fishing. Everything they had hoped for for three and a half years was gone. Their hope was only earthly, and that's something they have to learn and realize that if their hope were spiritual and heavenly, it wouldn't have to be gone. But they're not that mature. They don't understand that well. And so they're fishing. And then that day of the week, Jesus Christ comes to the disciples. And another time, he appears to John and Peter at the grave. And another time, he appears to Peter. His appearance to Peter, both the resurrection morning and then later as recorded in John 21, 
happened sometime after the resurrection, his appearance to Peter amounts essentially to this. Peter, you are forgiven. Peter, you will be an apostle. Peter, as one who knows you're forgiven and who will be an apostle, go now to those on account of your sins, go to those who have been weakened and strengthen them. Start there. And so Peter does. There should be, in the appearance of Jesus Christ to Peter, no argument. No argument that in Reformed Church polity, if a pastor falls grossly into sin, he either should not lose his office or it should be restored to him soon. There should be no such argument with appeal to Peter. And there shouldn't, because there's quite a difference between Peter's sin, grievous though it was, and the gross sin of any office bearer in a Reformed church. And the difference is this. The Peter who sinned did so before the death and resurrection of Christ. He was, as it were, a child yet. The Peter who is restored is, as it were, a mature adult after the death and resurrection of Christ. It's not a basis for an argument that an office bearer who falls into sin should either be kept in his office or restored quickly to that office, but it is a reason for us to say this, that in the church of Jesus Christ, when somebody falls grievously into sin and sees the error of his sin and learns to hate that sin, such a one has this calling. We all do, we all do. But such one especially has this calling. When you see somebody else about to commit that sin, go to him, go to her, warn him. When you hear of somebody else who has actually fallen into such a sin, go to him, go to her, comfort them. And do what David also did in Psalm 51, verse 13. Psalm 51. He'd committed adultery, and he had committed murder, and he had lived impenitently for nine or so months, and he's brought to repentance now, and he says in verse 13, then will I teach transgressors thy way, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. This is my great mission in life now, to look out for sinners and restore them. It is easy for us, maybe us who haven't fallen deeply into sin, not to be so quick to work toward the restoration of a sinner. And it might also be true that we suppose as individual members of a congregation that the consistory will take care of that and so we'll back off. David and Peter were to go restore the fallen sinner. 
And as Peter would do that, both in testifying to his fellow disciples that he has seen the risen Lord, and then later preaching the gospel of the resurrection throughout the areas that God sent him as an apostle, as Peter would do that, he would show himself to be, by the grace of God, a rock. One whom God would use to show Satan how powerless Satan is in the face of Jehovah God, who infallibly saves his church. And now I've given you another reason why sometimes God in his providence will let us fall deeply into sin. To teach us how weak we are, but also in restoring, to prepare us to serve in the body of Christ, to build one another up, to walk with the fallen brother or sister, and to restore in a spirit of meekness, considering ourselves, lest we also be tempted. Think back over your life. Is there a moment or are there some moments when your temptation was so great that you were even of a mind to cast off your faith and to deny your Lord and to leave the church of Jesus Christ altogether? Was there? And now when you hear your Savior saying, I have prayed, for thee. You know where he was. You know what he was doing. And you know you were safe. Safe, that is, in that Satan would not get his way. And you have the testimony of it today, don't you? Jehovah God heard and is still hearing the prayer of Jesus Christ. And here is the proof. Your faith has not failed. Amen. <coughs> Father which art in heaven, we thank thee for preserving in us that faith that could alone come from Christ himself and can be strengthened only by our Lord through his spirit. And we pray has been strengthened tonight by the preaching of the gospel. Apply it to us. Apply it to us in such a way that we are encouraged, that we are assured, not that we will have no trials, but that thou dost not leave us nor forsake us. We implore thee on the basis of Christ's death and resurrection for his sake. Amen.